Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Cynthia Kerner. She's professor of history at George Mason University, and she's the author of Inventing Disaster, The Culture of Calamity from the Jamestown Colony to the Johnstown Flood. Cynthia, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So this is a book that goes from a man eating his wife to a sort of hunting and fishing club insufficiently uh, maintaining a dam or basically building a cheap dam at a too cheap and killing, what, two, 3,000 people because of it. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, you were inspired, actually, as you are telling me before we started recording by Superstorm Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, at least. It was Hurricane Sandy when it hit New Jersey. It only became, I guess, Superstorm when it hit New York City, whatever, for whatever reason, I forget. Um, why? Because it, it hit your home? I mean, what's, what, was the, what was the reason for that? Well, it didn't hit my home um, because I live in Virginia, yeah, but sure. it hit the Jersey Shore, which is a place where I spend a lot of time, and the iconic roller coaster that ended up falling into the, off of the boardwalk into the Atlantic yeah. Ocean was my childhood roller coaster, really? and it was just like, It was like, wow. it moved a quarter mile offshore or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was, and it, and it really is this sort of iconic yeah. image that, that um, you know, it's really quite remarkable. And, and it's in the book, it sets up the introduction. It there. sets up the introduction of the book. I'm like, oh, please, I have to have the roller coaster, because it really did, it really is, when historians write, they usually start with a research question. My research question was, Basically, you know, why did people react to Sandy the way they reacted to Sandy? And um, the question came from my obsessively watching um, TV news, both CNN and kind of online news streaming, mm -hmm. um, in the aftermath of Sandy and coming to the realization that although the places were different and the people were different and the accents were different, um, the stories that were being told about Sandy and the measures that were being taken or not taken in the aftermath of Sandy um, were pretty much identical to what happened after Katrina, what happened after, um, you know, the tsunami in Asia, what happened after, you know, whatever. I mean, the list can go on forever. Mm -hmm. And so from that, I sort of took away this idea that, that Americans and perhaps other people today um, have a kind of ritualized response to disaster. When bad things happen, when disasters happen, um, you know, first we get the numbers, how many people died, you know, how much property losses. Um, then we get the human interest stories, the sad stories about people who, like, lost their home or their family or their pets, um, um, and sometimes the outrageous stories about people who were, you know, kind of doing bad things to each other mm -hmm. in the aftermath of disaster. And then finally, we get um, the insurance claims, the official reports, um, you know, the ideas for preventing future disasters, which, you know, usually aren't adopted because they're too expensive or they're too unpopular. But my question became, where does this come from? So it's as I read the book, I'm beginning to think that, that disaster, there's a particularly, modernity has a particular response to disaster. Um, it's one of your underlying, I think, yeah. questions. That this ritualized response that the modern world has towards natural disaster, the way that we 
the way that we cope with things that we can't we can't really cope even we can't build the walls high enough to deal with like a category five hurricane um, it's these things happen and we have a sort of this the sort of liturgy that we with which we respond to these things is that, is that um, yeah except I would add two caveats first of all you know the modern world um, I, I mean I would imagine and I'm not an expert in the whole world's history um, but I would imagine that aspects of our ritualized response to disaster does vary across both space and time. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the late 18th century is modern, but it's modern in a different way, way different from the mid the late 19th century. Um, you know, the British Empire is modern, but it's modern in a different way from, say, the early American Republic. And then the second caveat that I would add is kind of a, um, uh, a favorite talking point of scholars in the field of disaster studies, so people who look at... There is such a thing. Yeah, there is such a thing with capital letters and everything. Um, you know, and, so, and, so, and, so, and so some of them are, you know, public policy people. Some of them are... Anthropologists, some of them are lit people, art historians, historians, um, you know, whatever. Um, and they would argue that there really is no such thing as a natural disaster and that this sort of dichotomy that we set up um, rhetorically and, and I think conceptually between um, human-made disasters and, you know, quote-unquote natural disasters, it's really more of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So, like, a hurricane becomes a disaster only when it, you know, hits a place where um, population density is probably too great mm -hmm. um, in, to, it, to be in right. a hurricane zone, when building codes aren't good enough, when, you know... Think yeah. of all the hurricanes out in the Mid-Atlantic that we don't even, you know, absolutely. We don't care about. Absolutely, right? yes. absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. So, um, will you begin... I, actually, let me, let me pause this. Okay, so you start with... Um, well, you have several questions, which we should probably, um, we're, we're going to go to at the end after we've gone right. through this. So, um, is you start with the starting time at Jamestown. Right. I think it's because you start, you, you are, uh, you've done a lot of history of Virginia. And, mm -hmm. and of course, I, I uh, you are talking about this, how many people died? I forget, out of, out of 160, it was down to, what, 30, 40? So it's, it's a, well, but then they keep sending more people. And the statistic more. that I like that is really telling, that <laughs> in the, you know, in the yeah. first 17 years of Jamestown's existence, when it's being run by the Virginia Company, mm -hmm. five out of six settlers died. Yeah, so it's like being dropped into a food processor. Right, and so they keep sending more people saying, well, you know, maybe these folks won't die, but yeah. they die. They, I, they, and I think it's not until 1690, if I recall the demographics, that Virginia actually has a population greater than the number of people that have immigrated there. That might be right. I, 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 I'm not 100% sure, but I do, I do know that mortality rates, um, you know, level off significantly in the 1640s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah. So was the starving time a disaster? Well, I mean, that's why I start with Jamestown, exactly. right? I mean, I actually, I have written a lot about Virginia. I haven't written a lot about mm -hmm. the yes. 17th century. Um, so going back and looking at those sources with like all the funky spelling was kind of like, oh, this will be fun. Um, but the thing that strikes me about Jamestown is, first of all, it's a story that most people know. So it's a useful baseline. I, you know, even if they don't know they the know story. Of, they know they, it exists. Right. They know it exists. They know that there was lots of disease. There was lots of yeah. famine. There was also a big fire. There was a, at, least one, at least one major hurricane. Yeah. 
Um, and, and each of these things individually, you know, if they happened in 2019, would be considered a disaster, disaster. regardless of where they happened. Um, and so Jamestown is a really interesting baseline for me because it's a time and a place when all sorts of bad things are happening mm-hmm. and all sorts of people are dying in, in significant numbers. But that culture of disaster that I spoke about earlier in mm-hmm. reference to, say, Superstorm Sandy, um, I mean, there's nothing like that that happens. Um, and and I mean, I think there are important reasons for that. Um, most importantly, um, the lack of information um, about what's going on in Jamestown and about the, the, the you know the, the horrible death rates and everything outside of the colony itself and the very small circles of the Virginia Company who were like kind of the investors and, and the managers of the colony. So to people back in England who maybe would have cared if they knew, um, What's happening in Jamestown is all but invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that, uh, th- there are no newspapers um, you know, to report these stories. There's no printing press in Virginia until, until much, much later. Um, and so if you don't have the information, you don't have people seeing what's happening as a problem that either needs to be relieved, right, or needs to be prevented. So, I mean, I think there's probably a line in the book, there's certainly a line, and, you know, when I give talks about this, that, you know, disaster relief, quote unquote, at Jamestown was to send more people and hope they didn't die, but they did, you know, um, and, but nobody really cares about it, um, aside from the fact that the Virginia company is going to lose their their investment, um, but they don't care about it because they don't know about so it. So disaster relies on publicity or knowledge or information or something like that. Really, you need a press. Right. You do. You need you need information. You don't necessarily need, um, you know, newspapers and, and, you know, what we call the media. Right. Um, but you certainly do need a way of communicating, um, you know, either by, word, either by word of mouth or yeah. by pamphlets yeah. of the sort of thing that's going on. Yeah. And, and that takes the sort of connections that begin um, to emerge in, in kind of the early modern period. Um, uh-huh. right. So that's it's an interesting way of, of thinking, but part of this is also, and we'll get to the Lisbon earthquake, but part of it is a way of conceptualizing the natural world. Things did pass by word of mouth, say in the medieval, the medieval Europe, but disasters were conceived, also were conceived of in a, in a different way. Well, right. And and also the difference between medieval Europe and Jamestown is that, you know, America is far away. Far away. And so, you know, those kind of word of mouth connections that might happen from village to village mm-hmm. in medieval Europe, say, during the Black Death, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, is ju- they're just a lot less likely so to happen. It, it, you have like, Jamestown is like a lab case for you of, of sort of how to define disaster and, and showing that information is part of what it does, is, is an important component of disaster. You have to be able to react right. to disaster. Right. And I mean, I think that mostly comes later in the book, but I think that, I mean, the title of my first chapter is Death Without Disaster. Yes, and, right. and, 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 Devastation you know, Without Disaster. Or Devastation Without Disaster. And I make a point of, of really trying not to use that word in the first chapter and, yeah. and actually calling 
the things that happen at Jamestown, bad things that happen, yeah. which sounds very unscholarly. Um, but I mean, the, I chose the words very purposefully because the point is that bad things happen all the time, um, but they don't necessarily rise to the level of disaster. And we don't put them into, uh, how I put this, really bad things can happen. And we might not think of them as disasters either. It's, well, and we probably shouldn't in a lot yeah, of cases. Lot of so, cases. like, when I teach disaster history courses, you know, I always have someone who wants to write about, you know, some battle that, that someone lost. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, one of the definitions of disaster, and, and there is no really precise definition. People disagree about it. Um, but, I mean, but I think one of the, one of the things that people do agree, agree on is that a disaster... Um, it's not something that is foreseeable or something that right. is intentional. So, you know, you go to war, you fight a battle. Yeah, you know, guys are going to die. Yeah. And, and, and if, you don't, if you can't foresee that, then you're, like, really it's stupid. Really you know? yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. really problematic. So you talk about shipwreck. You have a chapter devoted to shipwreck, right. which is great. Because you, you, so you see shipwreck as sort of the archetypal, 18, is that right, 17th and 18th century sort of disaster? And, and in places like Portugal, going back even before yeah. that. And even, and, and we're going to get to like steamboats. Right. And, oh. the, and the Lexington. Yeah. Uh, so that's a shipwreck of a kind. Um, so shipwreck, why is shipwreck so archetypal for you? Why is it for Because I think they're the first disaster stories. Yeah. And so like while the bad things that are happening um, in Jamestown are, I mean, nobody's really telling stories about mm -hmm. them, about the, about the man eating his wife and yeah. about... You know, and it, it, cannibalism and all of that. Um, shipwreck stories. Yeah, we, it's taken, in fact, four hundred years for that story to, to come out. Cover some of those stories. Exactly. Ex those exactly. Stories. Exactly. No, that's right. Um, whereas I think shipwreck stories, um, they become a very popular literary genre. Remember, pre-newspaper in yes. most places, um, in countries in Western Europe, um, and and also in North America where people are engaged in exploration and colonization and commerce. So people are interested in shipwreck narratives because more and more um, shipping mm -hmm. um, and it, of both people and goods is becoming sort of an important part of their, you know, kind of intellectual landscape and cultural experience. And so... Even though, you know, there are plenty of plagues, there are plenty of, of, of fires, there are plenty of, you know, all kinds of bad things that are happening. Um, it's the shipwreck stories that provide um, not just information, but the other thing that I haven't talked about, the kind of the sentiment, right? Yes. The human interest, the human interest angle. Um, and, and shipwreck stories are popular because, well, they're exciting. I mean, remember, mm -hmm. there, people are writing these things um, before people are really writing novels. So mm -hmm. they're stories. I mean, they're not just the first disaster stories. They're among the first secular stories, mm -hmm. period. Um, and they become very popular for that reason. And I think that people can sometimes, um, you know, identify with the characters in the stories um, either because they share similar nationalist ambitions or they share similar religious orientation or, or just because they've been on a ship or they know someone who's been on a ship. And, and so it's exotic. It's exotic. It's a, that's it's that's a, right. It's like a spaceship accident. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Watch Gravity. Yeah. You know, or one of these new or this new Ad Astra. Right. Uh, that's, that's right. That's, that's taking us, I think, into that mentality. Um, 
those uh, people are investing. Some people are investing yes, in them. Yes, that's right. Um, so there's an insurance market. Yeah. There's, there's that sort of well, thing. Well, and that's the first insurance yeah. market, first right? Insurance so insurance. Is, mar- is maritime insurance and shipping insurance. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I think, um, you know, shipwreck stories are that important um, link, both in terms of sort of, you know, constructing these informative, but also, you know, potentially very sentimental yeah. narratives. You talk about the shipwreck stories have all the genres of disaster literature. You say they're quantitative, technical, and then effective. That's the that's the mm-hmm. sentiment. And, and, and we should get to the quantitative and technical again, but the effective seems to be man, not even against na- nature, just not giving a damn about mankind. Uh, right. That this, here's this immense ship, the largest moving human construction of its time. And yet, before a storm, it's nothing. That's right. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. And in the English-speaking world, um, you know, it's not surprising that that shipwreck stories become a really important literary genre. I mean, a little bit in the 16th century, because the English are just sort of getting their feet wet. Mm -hmm. Uh, No pun intended, (laughs) right? Um, But but in the 17th century and. And another thing I think that's important about them is not just that they're, they're stories and they have this human interest element, um, but they are appearing and being read in times and places where they don't have newspapers. Mm-hmm. So they're, in a lot of ways, the precursor to the sort of stories about shipwrecks that are eventually going to end up in magazines and newspapers mm-hmm. and things, and, and reach a, maybe a wider audience in that way. Yeah. Um, what the, what the quantitative and technical part of the, the story? I mean, when you're, you're just this is like how many people died, uh, why it, why the ship smashed up, I and mean, what's the well the quantitative yeah is pretty much how many people died and how much cargo was lost yeah. and and so like the first the first disasters that end up being newspaper stories are actually in the shipping section and that's exactly what it is it's yeah. all it's all just numbers sure. right you know the the ship Mary Margaret got destroyed and this much tobacco God was lost. Sands, That's right. It, exactly. 160 tons of tobacco lost. Exactly. Eight souls, you know, blah, blah, dog. Exa- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the quantitative. The technical is, um, I mean, you know, unless you know and understand this stuff, just mind-numbingly technical. Um, and you kind of you, you can kind of envision a lot of 17th and 18th century readers saying, "Well, I'm going to skip this part because <laughs> I don't really understand it." Um, but I mean, I think that you know the minute detail um, of the sort of technical aspects of some of these stories, not all of them, probably served two purposes. One was if these folks were filing insurance claims. This was one of it was like an affidavit. I mean, this was one of the ways of them explaining that look, it's not my fault. Um, you know, we know um, how to work the ship, and here is proof of my technical expertise. There was just there was no stopping um, the storm or, or whatever it was. Um, and then the other thing that either purposely or unwittingly that I think the technical part of the story does is it really shows people um, trying to thwart disaster. Because really, I mean, up until this time, when people said that, oh, you know, a shipwreck was an act of God, 
they literally meant that it was an act of God. And, and, and so a totally appropriate response to a storm, an epidemic or whatever would be to say, oh, wow, you know, this is really bad, but I guess it's God's will. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that the technical aspects of at least some of these shipwreck stories, and they do tend to be the later ones, mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that they accomplish is they, they, they sort of plant the suggestion um, that people, um, you know, have the, you know, the means and in some cases the ability to fight back against bad things that happen. Mm -hmm. And that obviously becomes another important ingredient very in our important. modern culture of disaster. I mean, very often we choose not to fight back against bad things that happen. It's like, really, um, do you want to build a bigger levy? Nah, it'll be too expensive. Yeah. But, but, but the fact that, the fact that, you know, our culture acknowledges that there are things that people can do. Um, I think that originates oh, yeah. in the shipwreck yeah, story as well. Uh, that's fascinating. Part. I mean, maybe it predominates in our own disaster literature. Absolutely. It has a lot to do with our sometimes inability to recognize that risk still exists. Um, but we can, we'll get to that in a little right, bit. Right, 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 right. Um, the one thing is just talking about this, too. I mean, uh, by the way, people think about it Robinson Crusoe begins with a shipwreck. Yes, Defoe, yes, absolutely. Defoe must have written a lot of shipwreck pamphlets. He's a, in, he's one of many of the Grub Street writers who's pumping out these shipwreck narratives absolutely. by the bushel. Um, there's also there's a there's a religious part to it. And mm -hmm. I was looking at some Benjamin West paintings the other day and realizing he and then John Trumbull later picked this up. There's a genre of people, the last survivors of the flood, like the last people before Noah floats off, dying in the flood. Um, it's there's a, so there's shipwrecks have a sort of religious effective. Uh, I think there's a some, something going on there as well. Oh, absolutely. That, that, that yeah. strikes people. Yeah. Uh, the idea. I mean, you see this at the, the end of Moby Dick. I alone am left to tell thee. Um, there's something about being a remnant, about being a survivor uh, from a shipwreck. It's that's the whole theme of Robinson Crusoe is That's being right. that survivor or remnant, being snatched by the grace of God from disaster. And there's this great um, tradition, um, and it's a common, the Robinsoniads yeah. um, of Robinson Crusoe imitators. Mm -hmm. um, the, so like in the 18th century, and, and I guess later too, mm -hmm. you know, there are people you know, writing books that are kind of like Robinson Crusoe because, wow, that was really popular. Let's, let's try and do that. And, um, yeah, no, and I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the other appeal of the shipwreck narratives, and, and you touched on this before, um, is the whole idea of, of them being exotic. I mean, mm. you know, people don't write best-selling novels about folks who get shipwrecked in Connecticut. <laughs> you know, I, and, and so, you know, the whole Robinson Crusoe thing Although is, in 1607, that would have been exotic. Well, yes, that's true, that's true. But, but um, the, 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 um, Yes, sir. But Robinson Crusoe. Robin, the whole Robinson Crusoe thing. Um, well, it's like you know, Robinson. That's right. I mean, he he's, is, um, you know, dumped on on this, you know, kind of exotic island where he, where he can interact with the natives, you know, yeah. and, and sort of show himself, but also his readers, you know, the mm -hmm. superiority of English ways mm -hmm. and English culture. But so much of that. that book is interior. Yes, you know, it is. It's, it it's is. all him dealing with it being is. alone. 
It is. And so like one of the shipwreck narratives that I discuss a lot in the book um, is this guy, um, Jonathan Dickinson, who um, shipwrecks off the coast of East Florida near what is today like Juno Beach, mm-hmm. Jupiter, that area. In fact, there's a state park there named for him. Um, and he writes this account that, I mean, I think he writes it mostly as, you know, a kind of adventure story. And this is in the 1690s, so it's before Defoe, mm. um, you know, and he talks about, you know, the cannibals in Florida and how, you know, and, and, and how they finally escape from them and all of that. But yet, interestingly, when the book is published, um, in Philadelphia by Quakers, and Dickinson himself was a Quaker. Mm. It's got this big, you know, kind of religious preface and a religious afterward. And and the book goes through, I mean, many, many, many editions into the mid to late 19th century. And it's fascinating to see the way it is packaged and repackaged, um, even down to, like, changes in the title mm. over the years. So sometimes... You know, if you look at it quickly, it's like, ooh, it's a story about cannibals. Um, but if you look at, at another edition, it's like, oh, it's about, you know, God saving, um, you know, these, these shipwrecked people, mm-hmm. these godly people. So let's talk about earthquakes. What? Earthquakes. What about them? So there's a bunch of earthquakes. Uh, there's the Port Royal earthquake of, what, 1694? Um, uh, 92. 92. Um, there's, I've read tons of pamphlets from various ministers, you know, decrying the, the vials, the, the violence and the licentiousness of Port Royal that led yes. to its destruction. Yep, yep. There are shocks, earthquakes, some tremors hit London in 1750. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop of London, they all preach sermons on this. And then, so there, and there are shocks in Virginia too, I think. Well, the and there's the big one in Peru in the, the late 1740s. Late 1740s, in Lima, the yeah. Lima, Calau. Calau, yeah. So there are, there's an earthquake genre of the early 18th century, and then the big one. Yep. 1755, the Lisbon earthquake. Anyone who had to read Candide in French one mm-hmm. knows yeah, about yeah, this. That's right. That's yeah, right. had to translate that. Yeah. Um, so what makes the Lisbon earthquake? You would think from the response to it that it was like the first earthquake in history. Right. 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 There's been a whole. But it's not. There's a whole genre. What makes the Lisbon earthquake in 1755? Well, what's really interesting is that a lot of people in Europe who have written about earthquakes know it's not the first earthquake right. in history. They compile these lists of earthquakes throughout history. But I think that, that there are several things um, that make Lisbon different. Um, I mean, first of all, the fact that it killed probably around 40,000 people. And at the time, some of the estimates were as high as 100,000. Yeah, yeah, you said a ship captain from Boston. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, everybody died. (laughs) They're all dead. Um, Well, it's like, can I tell the difference between 40 and 100,000? Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. And and in a way, I mean, does it really matter? It's still, you know. numbers, yeah. Exactly. So first of all, you know, it's the the, just the sheer numbers of people who died in close proximity. So obviously, you know, many, many more people died during the Black Death, but they're, sp- they're scattered. Um, and, it, and it's also over a longer chronological period. This is a matter in a matter of and, hours. And it's interesting. 1755 is, what's the, the, that plague that Defoe writes about is like the last big plague in Europe in the 1660s. I think is the right, last, the right. last really general plague across Europe. But he's really writing about he, he's writing about the 1660s. But he's 
It's kind of it's like kind a of metaphor like, for the Marseille plague yeah. in the 1720s. Okay, there's a Marseille so, plague. Yeah, and, that's, and, and that's that, more localized, though, isn't it? I think. Well, yeah, but people don't realize yeah. that at the time. Yeah. They're like, yeah. oh, it's in France. It's yeah. coming okay. here, right. and, and so they don't they don't know that. Yeah. Um, but, the, but but this is the first. This is a big. This is the first big one in a generation. Let's put it that right. Way. And so that's one thing: the the the, the sheer number of people who die. One could mm. argue that that. Um, Proportionately, um, the death toll in Peru um, mm-hmm. in the 1840s um, was higher. Um, but I think it's like, and, and people in Europe knew about like what went on in Peru. Um, but I think so far away. It, well, exactly. And although they read about it, and although they knew about it, and although there were actually some prominent Europeans who were there both before and after, um, I think the fact that it was so far away and that it was in, you know, America, mm-hmm. which still in the <laughs> 1740s is regarded as a kind of place that, where weird things happen. Yeah. And where, you know, yeah, there is strange weather. There's these hurricanes. I mean, we, know, we there are blizzards. There are like all these. So, I mean, I think when kind of really bizarre, you know, weather or environmental things happened in the Americas, people might have been like, you know, taken aback, but not shocked in quite the same way. I mean, Lisbon was one of the biggest, wealthiest cities in Europe. Um, it was a place where um, a lot of English people, merchants in particular, were resonant. It I, was. They, I was struck by that, and also the number yeah. of colonial, colonial British, I'd say, British North Americans who are sailing to or from Lisbon at the time, and yeah. bringing the news immediately back to the to the 13 colonies. Exactly. So, and I mean, so I think the important part of that is that Lisbon is a place that most Europeans sort of see as being familiar mm. um, and predictable and, and, you know, maybe even safe. I mean, unless you count like the ex, ex, the Inquisition sort of burning people at the stake, which, but that's like um, a different thing. So, I mean, I think those two things um, made Lisbon, um, you know, just really unprecedented in a lot of ways. And those two things in turn um, make the cultural impact of Lisbon um, just way off the charts compared to anything else that had happened before in terms of the number of pamphlets um, and and other accounts that are written um, describing what happened there in terms of the number of visual images um, that are produced. I mean, now it seems to me images of disasters are just so routine that, that we almost don't notice them. Um, in 1755, it was like a new thing. I mean, the only disaster prior to Lisbon that I encountered that had at all a significant number of visual representations was the Great Fire of London mm-hmm. in 1666. And even then, um, there weren't that many of them. And they mm-hmm. were mostly sort of paintings that you know you had to go see them. Um, whereas in Lisbon, they're doing these, you know, prints that that, that can be, um, you know, like reproduced. Um, plus, they're doing paintings. Plus, they're doing. So I think there's like something like 50 um, visual representations made um, of the Lisbon earthquake. Um, and you know, and the other thing that that's really really new about Lisbon is this international relief effort that mm-hmm. that, that arises um, in response to you know, and it's not just an earthquake; it's an earthquake. Followed by a fire, followed by followed by a tsunami. I mean, it, it, the place is a mess, and um, 
and countries across Europe, um, and even some colonists in America, and most notably in Brazil, right, which is obviously a Portuguese colony, um, you know, take up collections, and you know, sometimes it's people, sometimes it's government. Um, in the case of Great Britain, um, it is the king and parliament who were, you know, going out in public saying, you know, oh, we really need to help these people, which is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I mean, it really is a new thing. Um, Why? Why do you think that is? Why, why did people, what was the reason for this in a, a, an unprecedented, I mean, this is a world historic relief right, effort. Right, right, right. And it's very interesting. The first, the first thing is always interesting. So why, why is it because it was so awful? Because the cathedral collapsed on worshippers? It's a, it's a. It can't help it, them. It, it can't help them, <laughs> no. But it, it, uh, it, it, it did it because of the way they grabbed the imagination or it, it's, it is an interesting thing. I think part of it is that, but I think, that also, um, you know, the timing is important, both politically and culturally. Um, 1755, Europe is on the brink of war mm-hmm. again, and this becomes the Seven Years' War. In America, it's already being fought. Um, between, Washington's already started it. Right, exactly, between, mm-hmm. between the English and the French and their Native American allies. And so Portugal, at this point, um, is an ally, a historic ally, going back to, like, I think the 13th century of mm-hmm. Great Britain, and um, but at the same time, the French, for some reason, see an opportunity to kind of um, suggest to the Portuguese that maybe their interests aren't being best served by virtue. So there's that. Um, in Great Britain, which is of the countries in Europe, the one that I'm the most interested in, um, I think the Lisbon earthquake also you know coincides with this sort of cultural trend. Um, toward philanthropy, toward benevolence, and toward this, you know, kind of emerging identity, the idea that the people of Great Britain are the most benevolent, are the most philanthropic, are the most um, what? And then eventually a competition between nations to prove benevolence. Exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, I think it is this kind of perfect Mm. storm of political, military, and... um, uh, you know, and, and cultural sort of Effective, change. Even. It, yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, the fact that, that that the stories coming out of Lisbon are just like so, you know, just kind of bizarrely um, biblical, appalling. I mean, like, well, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and the and the language that they're using yes. is just so graphic. Like they like the word mangled. They yes. like <laughs> they like to talk about you know dismembered corpses and and things like that. Which I mean, if that is not going to sort of um, you know, arouse you emotionally speaking, re- because remember these people are living for the most part in a word, world without visuals. So yes. words are really going to be evocative right. in a way that that they're not quite as much, I think, in the world. So you move from uh, Lisbon to the United States, the North America, and you have a, a chapter called Disaster Nation. Um, why? Why did you choose that? Why, why, why that? I mean, well, okay. So you skipped over the, ch- the chapter in between, which is benevolent empire. That's right. And so the whole idea that that the generosity, the very public and publicized generosity um, of the king and parliament, sort of fed into this idea among the colonists that we're over part of this benevolent mm-hmm. empire. These people are going to help us, um, and to varying degrees, they did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are, and we, t- we talk about the fire of Montreal as part of that. The fire of Montreal never, never is, is, a, is a huge one because and, not only does the king send money, but he sends a bust of himself well, well, um, that, to put in the public square to sort of, um, you know, drive the point home to these recently conquered French people that, yeah, George is going to take care of you. Jonas king, Hanway, who I last appeared in my memory criticizing the drinking of tea. Dr. Samuel, one of Samuel Johnson's best essays uh-huh. is against Jonas Hanway. He was the philanthropist and, I guess, you know, doer of good works. Right, uh, right. He's involved in this. So this is, and, and there's a, and then also we could even get into, like, how this is part of the revolution, because if they're so benevolent, why are they treated, this is the, the, the sort of this. Right, and the British answer to that is, is the next time there's a really big hurricane um, yeah. in the West Indies in 1780, toward the end of American the American Revolution, is to send, like, Barbados and Jamaica just more money than, than, than they could have ever imagined getting. Yeah. And, you know, as you suggest, um, the, in the United States, um, they take a very different direction. Mm-hmm. The, the, the government-sponsored um, relief, which is not the only kind of relief that's happening within the British Empire, but it's an increasingly important aspect of disaster relief. That's not happening in post-revolutionary America mm-hmm. at all. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I write about in that chapter is, I mean, really the first post-revolutionary American disasters, the big yellow fever epidemic that happens in Philadelphia in 1793. And people have written a lot about this, and people who know a lot more about medicine and epidemiology and science and Philadelphia than I do all have really interesting things to say about that. But from my perspective, I mean, the one thing that nobody ever said before that just struck me as, as really, truly remarkable. In 1793, Philadelphia is the seat of three governments. Mm-hmm. There's a city government. There's a state government. It's still the capital of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the capital of the United States. And the response of all three governments to the epidemic is basically to pack up and run away. Yeah. And, and you know, it's kind of like a Monty Python, run away. <laughs> and, and that's what they do. They're, and They're getting in each other's way as they run away. <laughs> pretty much. And, and so what happens in Philadelphia, I mean, I think, first of all, says, you know, a lot about government perception of responsibility. George Washington is apparently, like, really kind of upset that Congress is disbanded, but he's upset because Congress is disbanded, yeah. not because of the yellow fever and quarantines and, oh, we should be doing something about this, but because of the war in Europe, that it's mm-hmm. like, oh, we really need to talk about this. Um, and so in Philadelphia, and this part of the story is really well known, um, disaster relief or relief for the sufferers, you know, burying the dead and attending to the, the sick in Philadelphia um, becomes the uh, the job of this committee of volunteers who are mostly sort of middling people, artisans, people like that, mm-hmm. who stay behind um, either because they can't leave or because they really are public-spirited and they, they like, want to... And then people like Richard Allen. And people like Richard St- Allen. And Stephen Gerard, um, people who are kind of on the edges of Philadelphia society That's the, right. because of their race or because of their profession or origin. You know, that's right. Gerard's not quite one of those. Right. Know? That's No, that's right. Mm-hmm. And that's so... Um, you know, I mean, the the best recent scholarship um, on the, the kind of politics in the early republic, I think, argues that contrary to what a lot of people kind of believe, um, the United States Constitution actually did give the new government enormous powers 
but in certain areas. Mm -hmm. And those areas tended to be, tended to focus on preserving and promoting the fiscal health and power of the nation um, and the military power of the nation. So, you know, helping suffering citizens in times of, of epidemics or fires or whatever, um, just as kind of not on the list of things that, that people thought mm -hmm. um, that, that the national government should have the power to do. But interestingly, state governments aren't doing it either, because that's what a lot of, you know, if you tell people that, they'll be like, oh, well, because it was about the states. and um, But states aren't doing it either. I mean, it was very unusual for states to do that sort of thing. And so... Um, what tended to happen would be um, if there was a fire, if there was an epidemic, if there was a whatever. I mean, there would be a local committee that would organize and that would solicit or sometimes just accept um, without soliciting contributions that would pour in. And um, I mean, I think that that worked because partly because the population density of the United States was in most places really, really low. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things that today would register as disasters that really need, you know, sort of major, um, you know, official intervention mm -hmm. um, really wouldn't have registered. You know, and hurricanes are a perfect example. Yeah. No one was stupid enough to build on a barrier island. Well, they were, but they would build by themselves, and they'd get blown away, and no one would know cheap, about it. You know, it's and it, well, well, that's true too. You know, I mean, it just—it's you know that it's going to be—it's—it's—it's it's made to be picked up and rebuilt. Right, and so like I mean, one of the hurricanes that that really interested me, and I really thought that I would write about it, but I ended up not. Um, in 1821, I mean, if you look on Wikipedia, there is an entry for, I think it's called the Norfolk and Long Island Hurricane. Okay. okay? And so Norfolk, Virginia, Long Island, New York, this is a big stretch of kind of the most, popu most populated mm -hmm. section of the United States at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking in all newspapers to like sort of see people talking about the Norfolk and Long Island Hurricane. First of all, no one called it that. Um, I mean, that's kind of something that we kind of look at the affected area and kind of create a name for something that, that people wouldn't have thought about as being connected back then. Um, but even like, you know, articles in newspapers, um, you know, talking about sort of localized damage. I mean, it's just not, it's not, the damage isn't as bad. Well, first of all, because in, in many cases, at least in North America, the storms weren't as bad. Mm -hmm. um, but... The damage wasn't as bad. The main reason is that the population density was, wasn't as great, and the, and the you know investment in property wasn't as great. And you know, and that's what even today, when Americans talk about you know storm damage, they're way more interested in property than people. Um, you know, and and well, relatively, it's interesting. I compare, like, say, the New England hurricane, what nineteen thirty-eight. Um, it's always interesting to see how. Few, many fewer people are killed right. by a storm striking the East Coast than that was. I mean, that's a that's a, the number death toll compared is so much larger than what we're used to. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so I mean, so I think that that you know is a really important consideration. By the time we get to the post-revolutionary period, people have information about what's going on, mm -hmm. but that information plays differently in their environment, you know, which is one of the reasons why I argue 
um, the most kind of iconic or most publicized um, disasters of the early American Republic, aside from the yellow fever victim, or fires, yeah. because they happen in cities. So let's talk about the Richmond Fire, which friend of this podcast, uh, Meredith Henny Baker, uh, right? She's listening to this, no doubt. Her ears are ears are getting red. She wrote a about, wrote a book about that. It's a great book. It's, it's a great book. I mean, a, I I I, t- I take issue with the subtitle. I don't yeah. think it was America's first great disaster. I think yeah. that would have been yellow fever. But still, I mean, no, it's a really. But good it's, book. what's great about that book is it is that she opened up a, a vein about an incident that uh, was big at the time and is now forgotten. Yeah. Um, and as you point out, you pointed out something that's. This is true. The Chicago fire, 600 people died. More or less at the same time, right? The, the town of Wisconsin burned. Peshtigo, yeah. Peshtigo, yeah. and 2,000 people died? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Richmond fire, big. New Madrid earthquake, which... in which Bigger. Bigger. <laughs> uh, uh, being so big that I'm in Richter scale, I don't know if it measures it, the Mississippi flowed backwards, uh, graveyards in Kentucky, people were shaken out of the yep. ground. Yeah. Um, it's immense, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't. That's not as big as the Richmond Fire. So, but so we're going to talk about the Richmond Fire. Why was the Richmond Fire so? Why did it grip? What was it, and why did it grip people's imagination? Well, I mean, I think the most important thing about the Richmond Fire is that a lot of people died. I mean, yeah. you know, and the numbers it, people debate, but I mean, I think the number they usually settle on, and I think the number that Baker settled on was like seventy six or seventy eight mm-hmm. or something like that. But I mean, nobody knows for sure how many people died because, right, they don't take attendance. At the There's theater. a theater, exactly. Um, and so, one of the things about urban fires, which were you know, happening all the time during this period. One of the interesting things about them is that it was very rare that someone actually died. So in Boston, they don't die in 1760. In Montreal in 1765, I think there's like one. Um, uh, The Portsmouth, New Hampshire fire. Portsmouth, New Hampshire has like three fires within, big fires, within the space of like a little bit more than a decade. I don't think anybody dies. And so the thing... About the rich, and, and well, and the reason why they don't die, right, is because all their buildings are kind of low. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're mostly built of wood, which is yes. why they burn, but they're they're mostly low, which is why people don't die. They have a way of getting out, and so with theaters, that's not the case. They're tall. Um, they still tend to be built of wood, but they're tall. A lot and there's of lot a lot of people. Um, hard to get out of. Not a lot of building regulations, um, and so. One of the reasons why the Richmond Theater Fire is such a big deal is because so many people die in it. Um, and also, it's an elite audience. Well, that, it's a, no, that, it's a right? no, it's that a mixed, mixed audience. It's a mixed audience, okay. um, and and I mean, I think that's one of the other things that's really interesting about it. Although the elite people sort of grab most of the press, sure. right? I mean, if you look at the list of the dead, I mean, it's kind of like what's going to happen with the steamboats later. There's going to be someone on that list who kind of looks like you, kind of mm-hmm. seems mm-hmm. like you. Oh God! Here's a shoemaker. Gee, you know my brother's a shoemaker. Or whatever. Um, you know there were African American people um, in that audience. Some enslaved, some free. There were people from Richmond and people from visiting um, from other places as well. So I mean, the high death toll is one thing. The, the just the, the the horrible, horrible way in which people died was another. So I mean, here again, like in Lisbon, we have. The stories about you know grisly mangled bodies and and um, you know only in some cases worse because 
you know, people would actually, there was one guy who, who actually, you know, wrote in the newspaper that his daughter had been at the theater and the only way that, that he knew that she was among the dead was, you know, her charred remains still had the locket that her grandfather had, you know, I mean, yeah. so all this kind of, I mean, just truly gruesome, gruesome stuff. Um, but then it also happened um, at a moment um, in American history where people in the United States are still sort of grappling with the idea of national identity. What does it mean to be an American? Um, in places, um, religious fervor or evangelicalism is beginning to be a thing. Um, interestingly, more in places like New York and Philadelphia than Virginia um, at this moment in time. And so, you know, there are these people who are, you know, evangelical ministers in, in northern cities in particular are, you know, writing these pamphlets that are saying, well, yeah, you know, of course this happened. Um, you know, they were at the theater. The theater is evil. You know, people are destined, you know, you're, you're displeasure, you know, you're, God is showing his displeasure for, you know, doing these kind of frivolous, um, ungodly sorts of things. And, and, you know, and then there are these other people who write in response to them. So the evangelicals will sometimes publish these lists of theater fires in history to prove that, well, so many theaters burned down, God must be really angry it's about the theater. And so their detractors write pamphlets that say, in effect, that, well, okay, yeah, a lot of theaters burn down and a lot of people die. But what is the other building that burns down a lot, causing a lot of deaths? Hmm, I bet it's churches. And so they would have the, because churches also yeah. tend to be the tall buildings that, you know, people are in the galleries, they can't get Both out of. Both of them have lots of candles. Both of them have lots of candles. Um, both of them have, you know, they're, they're built for a particular function that does not necessarily include, you know, getting out yeah. quickly. So there's also this, you know, kind of big cultural moment um, about, um, you know, the kind of the role of religion and the role of God mm -hmm. in, in, you know, kind of American identity and public life. Um, there are occasionally people, but not as many as you would think or hope. Um, you know, writing saying, well, you know, it's Virginia and those people own slaves. So, if God, of course, God is mad at them. Um, oh, but there, it, there's another problem when they're free and enslaved people die in the fire. Never mind. That's right. right. Exa exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is, so determining so, the wrath of the Almighty in these cases. Yeah. Is, is, uh, so, I mean, I think I think it's all of those things. And one of the really interesting things um, about the Richmond Theater fire in terms of disaster relief and why it's so different from everything else. Yeah is that, um, you know, unlike a fire, a normal urban fire, um, people aren't left homeless by this fire, right? I mean, they're not losing property. Um, they might lose loved ones, but they're, they're not losing property. They, they still have their houses and whatever food is in it and, you know, and, and all that. And so the normal way of doing disaster relief after a fire, which is to collect money to, to provide food and shelter, um, you know, kind of doesn't work. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't really make sense. And so what you have is um, people, you know, in different communities thinking like, oh, you know, this is horrible. I mean, what can we do? And, and so they come up with these kind of, you know, symbolic ways of showing emotion. So wearing black crepe armbands. Mm -hmm. um, in Norfolk, they have, um, so they have a big um, group funeral <laughs> in Richmond. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and like shortly after that, they do something similar in Norfolk. I mean, clearly they're not burying people in Norfolk, so it's like, but it's, it's a, like a, a fictive memorial. A, a memorial exactly, service. exactly. And people write and say, memorial. people write and say, well, you know, you might think that this is just spectacle, but in fact, um, you know, more people turned out for this event. Um, you know in a heartfelt sort of way than for anything is that, since... Is that since, the one where they had the empty coffins? Is that, yes, they actually yeah, did, yeah, yeah. yeah. Than for anything since the death of George Washington, which was like a big deal. And then my personal favorite um, was actually in Raleigh, North Carolina, huh. which, you know, is kind of Virginia's sister capital city, um, where they actually get together at a meeting of the local notables, and they're kind of like, well, you know, what can we do for Richmond? We want them to know that, you know, we feel their pain, so to speak. And what they do is they vote to allocate money um, to buy and to have carved um, a marble tablet that basically says, you know, we, the people of Raleigh, we, we share your grief and that they were going to do this and that they were going to send it to Richmond. I don't know if they ever did it, yeah. but just the whole idea that they thought that this was like an appropriate response or a useful response. Um, I mean, it, it, it's clearly, so, I mean, I would argue that one of the reasons why, um, you know, the Richmond theater fire is important is, you know, because of its uniqueness and, and because of its uniqueness, it generated so much, you know, what scholars like to call cultural discourse that we can use all this stuff um, to kind of, to kind of get a sort of window onto the culture in a time. And Let place. me read you to yourself. You say narratives of suffering and loss cast disasters and their effects as personal tragedies and disaster relief as voluntary expression of sympathetic social bonds as Americans, as Christians, between donors and sufferers. That's pretty good. <laughs> so a disaster all of a sudden creates unity. Uh, it creates a, a, an affectional, emotional... I mean, we see yeah, this after, yeah, we see yeah, this after yeah, Katrina. Absolutely, absolutely. We see, this, we see this powerfully after Katrina. We see this after other uh, disasters. All of a sudden, this teaches us how to be Americans. Well, okay, it creates unity, but it also creates kind of tension, right? Yes. Um, as indeed after Katrina, yes, you know, be, because... I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you have this kind of outpouring of emotion and outpouring of sympathy and the wearing of black armbands and all of that. But you have these ministers up in Philadelphia saying, oh, yeah, well, they deserve to die, you know. And, and, and I mean, to their credit, I mean, they weren't saying that, oh, people in Richmond really deserve to die because they're evil. Um, they would say, you know, something like, okay, this is, um, this is just a warning. This is an example. And the people in Richmond aren't uniquely well, sinful. I hesitate to say this, but after even any disaster, recent contemporary disaster on Twitter, you might find a lot of people saying the same thing. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. It, no, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, so this absolutely. is, this is a, it's, once again, we've got the same thing. It's really fascinating. No, absolutely. And so like after Katrina, yeah. you know, the, 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 the discord is about that. Oh, yeah. like, well, you know, gee, you Americans are being too nice to gay people, so God is mad. Um, but then also, you know, the, the, the discourse about race in the aftermath yeah, the race that happens in a red state or a blue state, yep, yep, you know, that yep, sort of thing. Yep, Everyone yep. goes to their respective corners. Yep. And it would now, within seconds, probably. Right, yeah. No, I think um, that's right. See, let's uh, talk about, before as we close up about steamboats. Oh, yeah. Because this is, uh, you know, my grandmother collected courier knives. And 
I remember vividly the Steamboat Lexington disaster. That picture was on a calendar. Really? Oh, yeah. That was on a calendar in our kitchen. That's great. Because I think they, <laughs> they they brought, it was like on a traveler's insurance agency that had a Curtis Ives calendar that they had sent That's out. great. And it was there. Yeah. And it took me, when you mentioned it and showed that picture, it took me back to like being eight and staring up at this thing and saying, I never heard it. Is this like the, whoa. That's bad. Yeah. So let's talk about the seat. Why does grandma have an exploding shoe yeah, on her wall? There you go. Well, and, you know, and it's really interesting. Um, I mean, one of my favorite illustrations in the book, and I'm digressing a bit from steamboats, but uh, is a, a disaster plate that they actually, there was a big fire in New York City, a, a really big fire yeah. in 1835. And someone thought it would be a good idea to put an illustration of this fire on a on a pottery plate. I don't mm -hmm. think they sold a lot because the <laughs> Lexington never ended up on a plate, and and that would have been, I think, a much more stunning. Curry knives. They 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 did a lot of lithographs of disasters. They did. They did. And I mean, one of the really interesting things about them is most people remember them and their lithographs as sort of chronicling um, American, you know, or celebrating mm -hmm. um, American progress. So like, you know, the, the steamboats and the railroads and the, mm -hmm. and the factories and the beautifully, you know, organized farmland. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But actually, exactly. there's a lot of pictures of burning buildings and exploding steamboats. Actually, yeah. And, and I mean, I actually made a count, um, like a quarter <laughs> of their steamboat, Pictures are exploding. Really? Um, yes. So what was the Lexington and what happened to the Portland? And well, I mean, the Lexington was, you know, one of hundreds yeah. of steamboats that exploded in the United States in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but exploding makes a much, much better picture. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I don't think, I mean, it's really weird because... When I started looking into steamboats, and I never thought I'd be writing about steamboats, it's just every time I did like a search for the word disaster uh -huh. in old newspapers, it'd always be about steamboats. And it's like, okay, so there's something here. I need to learn something about steamboats because I don't know anything about steamboats. And, and I did. And um, on one research trip that was sort of like a test trip, right? I figured that the way to do this, the smart way to do this, was to pick one steamboat that exploded and just spend a lot of time looking into, you know, kind of all of the kind of cultural droppings from, like, newspaper to, like, um, lithographs to, to um, you know, like, museum exhibits and, and, and animated entertainments, which they actually did. Um, and I picked the Lexington, and... In retrospect, I'm not entirely sure why I picked the Lexington. It wasn't the first. It wasn't the deadliest. It wasn't one of the ones that led to the enactment of, finally, federal legislation regulating um, steamboats, which was the first regulatory legislation um, first to, first to, re to regulate private corporations. Huh? Yeah. Wow. And so the first law is in 1838, um, and the, the more successful one is in 1852. And so the Lexington actually falls kind of in between. It doesn't really have that kind of impact. Um, but I was really glad, in retrospect, that I did pick the Lexington because the more I sort of dug into it, um, you know, I got to the Courier and Ives print, which, I mean, again, is not the only one, but that one actually is the first one. And more importantly, 
Um, the Courier and Ives print was a kind of more sophisticated, um, detailed, polished mm -hmm. reproduction of a, and it wouldn't have been Courier and Ives, it would have been just Courier at that <laughs> point, but of, of a Courier image of the explosion of the Lexington that appeared on the front page of the New York Herald newspaper. And that was like hugely important. That was the first kind of real-time depiction really? of a disaster that appeared in the American press. In the way that we now, of course, the, yeah, expect. Exactly, exactly. And you know the informational air that we breathe. That's right. And so it turns out that I mean the Lexington was important for a lot of reasons. I mean it was a big story. Everybody aboard the ship died except for like two crew members yeah. and one passenger. Yeah. Um and uh in Long, Long Island Sound. And the Long Island Sound. So you know it's happening. It it was it was going from, you know, New York to, well, not to Boston, but to Connecticut. And then you get on a train and go to Boston. So, I mean, these are obviously two big population centers, two big communication centers. New York by this time is the most important, um, you know, quote unquote, media center um, in the United States. Um, it does result in a coroner's inquest that is also highly publicized, um, you know, but results in, you know, nothing really happening. Um, you know, it's inconclusive. But in the process of the, the, the coroner's jury deciding it's inconclusive, the entire saga of what goes on is played out in the press. And, you know, so people get to read about the mangled bodies and about the, you know, all these stories about, you know, mothers trying to save their children, but it not happening um, because of the geographic sort of surround um and because it happens on the Long Island Sound, bodies are being washed ashore for like months afterwards. So that you know, a couple of months after you happen, after it happens, you would have a headline: another Lexington body washed up in New Jersey or or, or whatever. So I mean, the Lexington is um, in a lot of ways a kind of example of what went on in the aftermath of of a lot of these hundreds of steamboat explosions. But as I say in the book, um, some are more important than others. And by important, I mean the impact on the culture, not you know, necessarily how many people died, although that's important mm -hmm. as well, um, but the impact on the culture. And so the impact of the Lexington disaster on the culture, I think, is enormous. I mean, you know, there are sermons, there's a coroner's inquest, there are lots of newspaper articles, but I think it's really, really important in terms of of this visual element, um, which also shows up in um, like museum dioramas, okay, which which is a way of sort of replicating visually um, the things that happen. So there's one of them in New England. I think there's one of them in New York as well, which is like important because it's kind of the beginning of um, disaster stories as entertainment. Mm -hmm. In a, in a really different way from the shipwreck mm -hmm. narratives that I talk about earlier. So let's, let's we're, we're over an hour now, and I, I want to go back to some of the questions you asked at the beginning of the book. Okay. And um, just meditate on them um, briefly. This gets to one of your questions that you ask is how do disaster stories shape our ideas of what disasters actually are? And the way you've been answering that question our entire conversation, um, yeah. that visual representation of what a steamboat disaster actually is. It frames the way, <clears throat> the way we expect disasters mm -hmm. even now. 
to be, right? I mean, that's yeah, no, I think that's true. I think yeah. that's true. Um, I mean, and an element of that also that we haven't talked about, right, is um, is well, we have talked a little bit about race, but gender, right? I mean, the whole idea that. Um, particularly in the 19th century, that you know, men are supposed to, white men particularly, are supposed to protect um, women and children. Um, you read these stories, um, and you know, very often it's it's easy to read them either as <laughs> the women and children aren't really being protected very well, or um, you know, the flip side is when people wrote about disaster stories and they wrote about you know the heroics of individuals trying to protect other people. The people that they're writing about are invariably white men, so they're 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 also kind of ways of telling larger stories about the culture and about the, about the place of men and women. You tell the heroic story of the uh, was free black, yeah, and Richard, Gilbert Hunt, Gilbert yeah, Hunt, Gilbert Hunt, who did amazing things to save people from the Richmond theater fire. Yeah, and nobody knows about it until you know, like a half century later. Yeah, um, you also. It, you ask this really interesting question. In a democratic society, is disaster relief an expression of sympathy or an effort to maintain social order? Um, and that's, I, I left the book not really certain. <laughs> well, I think the answer is both. Yes. Right? And I think the answer is dependent on, you know, who you're asking, you know, what, not just like what people, but what institutions or organizations you're you're asking um i mean i think that for the government um whether state federal local i mean historically um preserving order has been paramount um but by the same token if you look at the historical origins of increased federal at least involvement in disaster relief you know the timeline of that kind of fits with the great society programs mm -hmm. of of the of the 60s and the 70s, um, and so you know FEMA's predecessor, um, which had a somewhat different name, I, I think was created in like 1973. Mm -hmm. um, the first federal disaster legislation, kind of blanket federal disaster regulation uh, legislation, is in is in 1950, um, which is, you know, so it's kind of a post-New Deal kind mm -hmm. of, um, but I think the answer is both. Um, and uh, so, like, probably a really kind of interesting take on how this works, or in some cases doesn't work, um, is Chef Jose Andres' recent book, um, We Fed a Nation, about, about Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, the story that he's telling and the argument that he's making is that NGOs like his World Central Kitchen and there are some other groups um, are really doing the job of, of, of feeding a nation, of feeding a people, and of doing the sort of, you know, the, the sentimental humanitarian work, mm -hmm. um, whereas the government's top priority does seem to be um, you know, preserving order. And I mean, he would argue in Puerto Rico, they don't even do that very well. But I mean, I think, you know, the kind of mixture of, you know, are we trying to help people or are we trying to preserve order um, probably plays out in different ways in different places. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it kind of depends partly on the competence and the commitment of the people involved, both in official and unofficial um 
you know, groups. Um, and I think it also depends on who the recipients or who the, 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 the um, you know, prospective recipients of relief are. I, I'm also thinking of, um, you're thinking of a very high-minded sort of way. I was thinking just in our way that we respond to disaster emotionally. I mean, when I, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Katrina showed that. I mean, one of the questions I suspect that everyone, when they're contemplating, say, Hurricane Andrew flattening Southern Florida or Katrina or, or, or watching a zombie movie, is what if that happened here? Right. And the breakdown, what would I do with the breakdown? What do I, I have friends talk, what happens when it all goes down? Yeah. Um, and that is, that, but it seems from the story, I mean, this is Robinson Crusoe stuff. Yep. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the the mm-hmm. concept of disaster is this the uh, the fear of social order, uh, the fear of a democratic society, not actually working out when there is nothing to when there are no guardrails to support it, perhaps. Oh, such a bummer. Um, I mean, can we really, can we really do this whole democracy thing if, you know, once the hurricane flattens us? Well, what's really interesting, so there's a a scholar, Rebecca Solnit, she's a a journalist and and, and a scholar as well, um, who writes about disasters um, in one of her books. And I think the title of the book is A Paradise Built in Hell. And what she argues is that government, media, um, corporations to a certain extent are always sort of portraying um, disasters as, you know, places where, you know, people are going to turn on each other, there's going to be violence, there's going to be looting, there's going to be, you know, all this horrible stuff is going to happen, disorder. Um, and well, that, really, and people really want to believe that. And so. well, exactly, and and that that actually even translates into Hollywood movies yeah, representation absolutely. of disaster. Certainly, the evening news, and what she and other people have done in their research is actually look at case studies and argue that, that yeah. in fact, left to their own devices, the opposite happens. People I, I do pull together. There's a guy at the University of Edinburgh who's written about epidemics and the plague. Uh, I think he's a medieval early modern. So I'm trying to get him for the podcast that's his finding is the way in which quite the contrary from right. our vision of the of the way that people avoided each other in times of Europe and plague actually there are times of increased emotional connection and uh, and solidarity which begs the question then why is it being portrayed in such a different fashion and I mean I think you know for news outlets I mean even the responsible ones um, and for people who make movies um, you know, the answer is that, wow, you know, this stuff will sell. People want to watch it. But but you kind of you kind of wonder about, you know, the people who are who are not really looking to sell movie tickets or get viewership. Um, You know, why, you know, official sources, why even like, you know, the Red Cross um, tends to portray things in that way. And we're also, why do people, I think, want to believe that on some level? Yeah, yeah. And that, now we're getting deep into, from history into like social psychology of the present moment. But, Which uh, is beyond the scope of my study. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, finally, uh, you uh, say that the way that we've thought about in the modern approach to disaster was rooted in the belief that humanity was able to conquer and control nature. Um, and... Is that sustainable now? Was it ever? Was it? Do you think it really was based on that? I mean, is the Lisbon earthquake? Is that response to the Lisbon earthquake based on the belief that humanity can conquer and control nature? 
And I think conquering control might be putting it a little strongly, but I do think that, you know, when they rebuilt Lisbon, they brought in all these scientists and engineers, and they were very interested in, um, you know, building buildings that would better withstand earthquakes. So there was a, um, a confidence might be too strong a word, but there was a belief that, you know, the central enlightenment belief that human beings have reason, and if we apply our reason um, to problems, um, we can solve them, or if not solve them, make things better than, than they would be. Um, you know, and they were kind of right about that. I mean, the old buildings, you know, really didn't hold up at all. We, we and, do and, know how to make buildings yeah. that can withstand earthquakes. Yeah, exactly. A, a, mason, a simple block-on-block masonry construction. Exactly. Um, I mean, I do think that as time went on, um, in certain quarters, people did come to believe that they could what were your words? Conquer and, words. and, and contain. Conquer and control nature. Conquer and control nature. Um, I, you know, and clearly that's not sustainable. Um, I mean, I think that possibly um, human beings can, um, you know, kind of make their lives safer and more predictable by accounting for and accommodating nature. You know, like don't build your house like really close to the coast in South Florida, you know. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, and, and I think that it, at least in some quarters, people are beginning to realize that. But I also think that the cost of realizing that and the cost of telling people that, okay, look, um, you know, nature in certain ways, at least, is unconquerable, and we have to adapt to yeah. that. But I mean, that's not going to sell. No, that's not, not and pe people don't. People in authority don't want to make statements that are either going to be inexpensive. Or, I mean, even you know, like on climate change, which is the best example. There are relatively small things. I mean, relatively small things that people can do to make things better. Not great, but better. And I mean, even those things are. are it runs against the other great enlightenment question. Who are you to tell me what to do? Well, and it also runs against, you know, frankly, capitalism and the profit motive. You know, um, it, it's like, really, you're going to tell me I can't build my big hotel like right on the water and 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 make tons of money off of it. You know, so I think that. And so I think that probably the majority view among our leaders is we don't want to do we don't want to make these kind of pronouncements because they'll be unpopular they'll yeah. be expensive well, but i also think that there is increasingly you know um a kind of minority view to the right of that that basically says screw it you know i mean let's none of this stuff matters let's make war on the environment i, I mean almost in a in a yeah, almost making war in the environment in a kind of way. That, Don't you think also at a deeper level, it's very hard for, this is a, not a political statement, but it's very hard for modern people to accept the, the idea of limits. Um, when, people, it, when people acknowledge limits in one area, then they want to deny limits in another area. And this, this seems to me one of the things that that's part of disaster's question, the question our ability to be unlimited. And it's, it's a very uncomfortable place for modern people, modern Americans to be. Right. But, I mean, again, the word modern, I mean, uh, I, 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 mean I would argue that, that that's... About, how about since 2000? About, I mean, really, I mean, it's very difficult. Right. It's very difficult 
to accept limits. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I mean, and you could go back further, you know, during sure. during like the energy crisis, Jimmy Carter with his with his cardigan sweater and how people thought that that was just like the most ridiculous thing ever. Mm-hmm. It's like, really? Wear a sweater. It's not that hard. <laughs> My guest today has been Cindy Kerner, and she is the author of a great new book, Inventing Disaster. Uh, it's available from the University of North Carolina Press as this podcast drops. Cindy Kerner, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.